Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Born to a Sicilian mother and an Irish father, Christopher James Christie earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Delaware and his JD from Seton Hall University School of Law. He served as U.S. Attorney for New Jersey from 2002 to 2008 and as Governor of New Jersey from 2010 to 2018. Governor Christie ran for president briefly in 2018. During the Trump administration, he served as an advisor to President Trump in a number of capacities, overseeing the transition at the beginning of the Trump years and then overseeing President Trump's preparation for debates uh, with then former Vice President Biden at the end of the Trump administration. Today, well, we'll see what Chris Christie is up to. Governor, thanks for joining us. Peter, thanks for having me. I want to come to policy. First, first a question politics. And in the Republican Party, it's the question. There is a view in the GOP that if former President Trump decides to run for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, every other prospective candidate should just sit it out. If President Trump wins the nomination, they will have lost. If he loses the nomination, whoever does win it will find himself losing on election day because the former president will peel away a third or more of the Republican base. So for any candidate other than Donald Trump himself, it's lose, lose. I'm going to stipulate that you have not decided what you want to do yourself. But does that argument, if Donald Trump comes in, everybody back away, does that argument make sense to you? No, it doesn't. Um, and, and I think anybody who tries to read what the political atmosphere will be in 2023, in 2021, um, is making a huge mistake. And, and the best example I can give you that is who in 2014, uh, in 2013, Peter, was saying, oh, well, if Donald Trump were to run for the Republican nomination, he'd definitely win. Right. I mean, you, you can't read these things that early. And I think the decision to run for president, having done it once already in 2016, the decision to run for president is an intensely personal one and one that you need to decide based upon whether you believe you have something unique to offer the country, not on who's running. And I think people who make those type of political calculus uh, when making those decisions are unworthy of the position. You think it would be better for the Republican Party and better for the country if the next nomination fight were a real fight? Oh, sure. I think we're always better off when we have a real fight. Uh, because it airs out the issues. It makes the candidate who ultimately emerges stronger and better than they would have been otherwise um, and hones the arguments for the fall campaign against the Democrats. So I think having a strong, vigorous primary, I'm not talking about, I, I would love to have it be a lot smaller than the 17 people that we had in 2016 because then it's hard to have anyone's voice be heard. Right. But I do think that a strong, vigorous debate about these issues within our own party will help to make us better adversaries for the Democrats in uh, 2024. Okay, so help me to understand Chris Christie. Your mother's a Sicilian, Italian-Americans traditionally Democratic. Your dad's Irish, Irish-Americans traditionally Democratic. You grew up in New Jersey, New Jersey overwhelmingly Democratic. And yet from the moment you appear as a political figure, really you're a kid when you get involved in politics. From that moment, you're a Republican. How come? Few reasons. First off, my dad is a Republican, always has been. Um, proudly says that he voted for Richard Nixon three times. Um, and my mother, 
uh, was a Wait Democrat. A he voted for that means he voted for Nixon in 1960 against the Irish candidate, he Irish did. Catholic candidate Jack Kennedy. He did. And my mother, the Sicilian, ran out to make sure she voted to offset his vote <laughs> um, and voted for, for, for President Kennedy. Um, but so my dad um, was always talking about kind of conservative Republican values in the House. And my mother was much more of what you would have called in the old days a blue dog Democrat. Um, an ethnic Democrat in the old mold, not in the FDR mold, but but more in the centrist kind of uh, approach. Church, family, traditional woman. Values, yeah. Values. All Values. Right. And so, and for me, the, the, the reason I became a Republican um, was twofold. Um, the first political convention I can remember watching was 1976. Mm. And hearing Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford as compared to Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, I, I, it much, much more appealing to me listening to Reagan and Ford. And then the, ne the very next year um, in my junior high school, my local state legislator came to speak to the junior high school as he was preparing to run for governor. And I just thought this was an amazing guy. And I decided to go and volunteer for his gubernatorial campaign. That guy was Tom Kane. Um, who eventually in 1981, he lost in 77 in the primary, but in 81 was elected governor of New Jersey. Um, the irony of all that was I, I went up and volunteered for him as a 15-year-old in 1977 to work on that campaign. And 32 years later, almost to the day of when I volunteered, he endorsed me for governor. You served as governor from 2010 to 2018, and you get reelected, so that's two terms, you get reelected, with, what was the percentage of the vote? 61% of it's the vote. It's so unbelievable that I, I wanted to ask you to make sure I had the figure right. You get reelected with over 60% of the vote in a state that at that time, the Democrats outnumbered Republicans by... By 850,000 voters. All right. So bear in mind you're talking to a Californian here. This is not a member, I'm not writing for the Bergen County paper. I'm not a New York <laughs> journalist. What do I need to know about what you, what good things happened because you were governor and what bad things never got started? Well, the good things that happened were we kept taxes stable. We capped property tax growth at no greater than 2%. Property taxes have been growing at 7% uh, a year for 10 years prior to me becoming governor. In my eight years as governor, the average property tax increase across the state was 1.7% per year. So we really strangled property tax increases over that period of time. We, we reformed our pension and health benefit system to save over $120 billion during that period of time by you know, restricting um, the growth of the pension system and making public employees pay a portion of their premiums for health benefits, which they were not doing when I became governor. Uh, we passed significant criminal justice reform mm -hmm. that put violent criminals and kept them in jail and gave judges the ability to keep them in jail pre-trial when they had a violent rap sheet, but did not keep minor offenders in prison pre-trial anymore, followed the federal system, put them on bracelets and got them out. Because of that, we were able to close two state prisons during my time as governor and converted one of them into a drug treatment prison for prisoners who have drug and alcohol problems when they come in. We've seen that if you get them treatment while they're in prison, they are much less likely to commit new crimes when they leave it. Um, and 
obviously the response to Hurricane Sandy right. um, will be the thing right. that I think my governorship will be remembered for the most. Uh, we lost 365,000 homes in 24 hours. Two-thirds of the state was without electric power for two weeks. It was the most devastating storm in the history of our state and the second most devastating storm in the country's history in terms of the amount of loss that happened. And we were able within a year to bring the state towards significant recovery. And I think a lot of people will always remember my governorship for that. You mentioned Tom Kane, your predecessor as Republican governor of New Jersey. You and he didn't always see eye to eye while you were governor, but here's what Tom Kane said. Chris Christie will resurface because he has too much ability not to. He's the most able politician I know, close quote. Now, I've been making some phone calls over the past week, and it turns out there are a lot of people who agree, and they all want to hear how you handle one problem. You know exactly where this is going. Bridgegate. I've got to set it up. 2013, several high New Jersey officials, including your deputy chief of staff, Bridget Kelly, are involved in blocking access to the George Washington Bridge in Fort Lee. This is on the New Jersey side of the river. Uh, and that traffic backs up for miles. This gets investigated. No charges are ever brought against you, but the others are convicted of fraud. They appeal. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court overturns the convictions, but only because there was no money that changed hands. Justice Kagan writes for the majority, not every corrupt act by state officials is a crime, close quote. So the Supreme Court concludes what the press was saying, which is that it was an act of political retribution against the Democratic mayor of Fort Lee for reasons that have so much to do with New Jersey politics that a Californian can't even begin to, to follow them. But you know the argument. Okay, corrupt act. The governor was not personally involved or culpable. That's been investigated. But they were his people. What's the, this, is a, this is a culture he established, pol political culture, his staff, his friends, his people. How do you deal with that? It's still, and this is, this is of course, you're a front runner in many people's minds for president. This thing comes out and you run in New Hampshire and finish sixth and it's the end of the race. So how do you handle it now, these years later? Well, I think in a few ways. The first is to say what you said up front, which is despite all of the incredible media attention this got at the time, um, that there has never been a shred of evidence that I was involved or had any knowledge of this in any way. You have 60,000 people working for you when you're governor of New Jersey. And the fact is that you can't know what every one of them is doing at every moment. Doesn't mean I'm not accountable. I'm accountable um, for what happened, but I'm not responsible mm. for what happened because I would have never permitted something like this to occur. And what these three folks were involved in was rank stupidity. However, you're a good politician yeah. and making thousands of people angry because they're sitting in their cars as traffic backs up is boneheaded politics, while apart I'm, from anything else. While I'm in the midst of running for re-election and ahead by 30 points. Right. Um, okay. You know, it, 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 everybody, the reason I think that most people in New Jersey in the political world didn't think I had anything to do with it is because they know I'm a heck of a lot smarter than that. They never do that. Now, but the other part is also important because this was rank stupidity that deserved to have these people fired, which is exactly what I did when I discovered it. It was not a crime. And this is where the Obama Justice Department, in my view, politicized what went on here. Right. They decided to go after these people because I was the front runner for President of the United States, because 
at that time I was leading Hillary Clinton in national polls because I had won 51% of the Hispanic vote for re-election in 2013 and 29% of the African-American vote, which no Republican had ever done. And they wanted to take me out. And they were hoping that they would find something that would take me out personally. They didn't. And then as a result, they brought charges that were absolutely trumped up against these three people. And ultimately, the United States Supreme Court, just think about this. You said they vacated it, and they did. They vacated it 9-0. Yes, that's true. Only this type of irresponsible prosecution, Peter, could bring Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas together on an issue, and it did on this one. All right. All right. From entrance ramps to the George Washington Bridge, up the river here, to the country. We're going to widen out the scope here. You talked about listening to the convention in 1976. Let me contrast the 70s with the 80s to set up the question, to set up the several questions. 1970s, embittered politics, economic stagnation, Watergate, defeat in Vietnam. 1980s, economic growth, a restoration of national morale. From 1979 to 1989, one decade, we go from the national humiliation of the Iranian hostage crisis, 1979, to victory in the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Is this country capable of another act of, of national self-renewal? Of course we are. That's not even hard for you. No, it's not hard for me at all because the American people <clears throat> and this system of government is are the best group of people and the best system of government that's ever been formed in the history of the world. And of course, during that period of time in the, in the 70s, the thing that really changed was that we had a weakness in leadership, both during the Nixon years by Watergate and the Carter years through incompetence and a lack of direction, which made people not believe in the government any longer in its ability to be able to provide the safety, security that they needed for them then to create prosperity and optimism. Uh, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush 41 came in in the 80s and were able to change all that. And I do think, again, that if we get the type of strong, principled, optimistic leadership again in the White House, that we can do it again. Okay, so let me give you, let me give you a few ways in which the country is in even worse shape today, in my opinion. You, you're not shy. Tell me no. if you think I'm, the premises here are mistaken. A few ways in which the country is even worse shape today than it was in the 1970s making renewal harder would go my suggestion. Fiscal policy, Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal, this is just last week, he noted that in 1977, federal debt was 34% of gross domestic product. Today, it is 125%. The share of Americans who have experienced direct government aid between 1977 and today has quadrupled. We have a welfare state that has grown Irreducibly, you can't, you can't, even you, tough as you would be, can't fix that a budget hole that big. You can't claw back a welfare state when over 50% of Americans, many of the middle class, are used to getting federal aid. What do you do with well, it? Well, first off, let's talk about why that happened. It's why elections have consequences, uh, and they do. And during both the Clinton years um, and the Obama years, in the period you're talking about, 
um, there was an expansion of the welfare state. And those uh, changes, as you said, are very, very hard to claw back. Now, what we need to do is not to make things worse, as Joe Biden's trying to do now, by increasing the welfare state even more. Uh, I think he's going to succeed in some of that, but not nearly as much as he might like, because he's got this year to do it. And I believe there'll be a Republican Congress, at least the House, in 2022 that will stop him from doing anything else. The answer to this is to not continue to add to the problem and to create an atmosphere of economic growth in this country again at the Reagan-type levels, which I believe is absolutely possible, to be able to grow our way out of a lot of this problem. You can't continue to dig. So one, you got to stop digging. Right. And two, you got to start growing again. And we haven't had nearly the emphasis on economic growth that we should. Even during the Trump years, while the growth was better, it was nowhere near what the growth was during the Reagan years. All right. The family. 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's famous report. In those days, the term was the Negro family. It was titled the Negro family. Of course, today we'd say black or African-American. And the crisis that had him so alarmed in 1965 was an out-of-wedlock birth rate of 25%. Today, the out-of-wedlock birth rate among African-Americans is over 70%. Among Hispanics, it is over 50%. And among whites, it is over 30%. Is there any way to put back together the pieces of the American family? Well, I think the American family has changed over that period of time. Right? We now have a recognition in our society that um, same-sex couples can be families. And that's recognized not only by the Supreme Court, but also recognized in society in general today. Corporations. Everywhere. Right. That's now recognized and same-sex couples can now be married in this country, which was not the case when I began as governor just in 2010. So we're seeing seismic changes to what families look like. To me, what's most important is to reinvigorate what it means to have adults, responsible adults, being an influence in children's lives. And and that's going to take a different form over time. So those numbers, while disturbing on one level, also represent a different way that people are approaching how they define a family these days as well. So what we need to do as a country is to say, The principles we stand for, yes, we support marriage, and we believe that marriage is the best way to form a family. But we want to tell every adult who decides to have children out of wedlock that just because you're out of wedlock doesn't free you of your responsibility to be an attentive, caring, and loving parent. And that's what we need to continue to talk about and emphasize. Okay. So the important thing thing is the kids. The important thing is for kids to be raised by parents. Fair summary? Yes. All right. All right, you you just granted gay marriage. Now we come to another social issue, abortion. In the 1980s, Roe versus Wade was still only a few years old. All these decades later, both sides have had decades to become entrenched in their positions. Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Finch, in her brief to the Supreme Court on the challenge to Roe, which the court has agreed to hear during this session, quote, there are those who'd like to believe that Roe settled the issue of abortion once for all, but all it did was establish a special rules regime for abortion jurisprudence 
that has left these cases out of step with other court decisions and neutral principles of law. It is time for the court to set this right and return this political debate to the political branches of government. Close quote. Two questions. You're a pretty good lawyer, I've heard. As a matter of law, should Roe be overturned? And the second question is, can the country take it? As a matter of law, Roe was decided, in my view, incorrectly. It was manufactured out of whole cloth. It was a result in search of a rationale. And whenever courts get involved with that, it doesn't settle questions. It just disturbs them and places them now in a different context. Roe is wrong. And the fact is that states should have the right to make this determination. Here's where, where the argument gets off the rails. People think if Roe is reversed, abortion goes away in this country. That may or may not be the case depending upon where you live right. in this country. In my home state of New Jersey, there's no chance, no chance that the legislature and governor in place now would ever do anything but codify Roe versus Wade after a negative decision on Roe from the Supreme Court. The more important question to me, questions are twofold. One, uh, don't you want the law and the Constitution to be followed? And I think we all should want that, no matter where we sit on the political spectrum. And, and secondly, let's get to the reason why I think the country will not fall apart on your second question because we know so much more now about the development of human life than we did nearly 50 years ago when Roe was decided. The technology now for seeing how a child develops in the womb right. tells us that the idea that abortion in a second trimester, that abortion in the late parts of a first trimester is not taking a human life is demonstrably untrue. And so as people see that, more people are pulling back from the idea that somehow this is okay because science is showing us exactly what's going on. And I think that will help to move American opinion. Every expecting family has a, an ultrasound on the refrigerator. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And those ultrasounds, even now, our youngest child is 18. What that ultrasound looked like 18 years ago and what it looks like today is dramatically different. And so the detail you can see very early in the development of a fetus should make us all think about whether unlimited abortion is something that we should live with. I, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm the only pro-life uh, person who's been elected governor of New Jersey since Roe versus Wade. And I feel that way with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother, because like Reagan, I believe those are acts of self-defense. Mm. But to me, the reason for that is because every life is an individual gift from God, and it's not for us to take that life. So could I, this is off politics, this is neat, this is politics and law, but small bore politics. Suppose you were advising the Chief Justice, John Roberts, and we know that the Chief Justice is an institutionalist, and we know that the Chief Justice is concerned about holding the country together. So would you be advising him, look, of course we, the people who are well-versed, every, everybody knows, even Cass Sunstein says that Roe, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that Roe was badly decided. 
this is bad law. Something has to be done. It can't be permitted to stand forever. But at this moment, it had better be an incrementalist approach. Give Mississippi a little something and kick the can of Roe itself down the road for another year or even another decade. Would you advise, if you could secretly slip into the Chief Justice's chambers, would you advise something like that? Or would you say, no, the law is the law. This is bad. Everybody knows it. You have a majority that's willing to overturn now. Overturn it. What I'd say to him is, get five votes to make the law right. Now, he may have to do some different things to get five votes to make the law correct, but the law needs to be corrected. And when you have people on all parts of the political spectrum and the ideological spectrum saying that Roe, as a legal matter, was decided incorrectly, that needs to be fixed. And that goes to the core of the court's credibility as well, not just the swings and changes and things as, as, as our history proceeds. So what I'd say to the Chief Justice is be a leader. Be a leader. Sit there with the other eight members of the court and try to reach consensus on first that this is not correct law. And then there may be other opinions inside that consensus about how far to go. I don't know what their ultimate decision will be, obviously, right. but that's got to be something that's a product of the court working together to get to five votes on the position of Roe having been decided incorrectly. I think that's the kind of leadership the chief has to provide. China. Henry Kissinger just some months ago, quote, I'm quoting Henry Kissinger, who's not given to inflammatory language, quote, America and China are now drifting increasingly toward confrontation. Unless there is some basis for some cooperative action, the world will slide into a catastrophe, close quote. Like the Soviet Union in the old days, China is communist. Unlike the Soviet Union in the old days, China is rich and it is competent and it is technologically cutting edge. Governor, we handled the Soviet Union, but how does a country of 330 million with political dysfunction everywhere stand up to a country of 1.3 billion, which it may be run with an iron fist, but run with a competent iron fist? Well, I disagree with the premise. They're more competent than the Soviets, but I would not say if you look at China today that they are without serious problems that are both um, demographic and political. The demographic problems is the, are the aging of the Chinese population. That 1.3 billion is a very old population. And because of the communist dictates on how many children each family could have, they are now expanding that mm -hmm. because what they now know is that they've allowed their country to become too old too fast. That's gonna create, as we know in this country, all types of political challenges because older people need to be taken care of. And that's an expensive and difficult emotional proposition. The Chinese also have built much of their country on theft. They steal ideas, mostly from America, but also from Western Europe. And they co-opt those ideas and turn them into money makers for themselves. There are things we can do about that to be much stronger in fighting the Chinese on their theft of our intellectual property. But also, we have to stop throwing bouquets at murdering communist dictators. In the last administration, 
If you look at the, the, the rhetoric of President Trump, in my view, through many, many, many bouquets at President Xi, both prior to COVID and at the beginning of COVID, mm -hmm. saying he was going to handle it, we should trust him. Well, I believe that you judge people by their acts, not by their words. And when you judge President Xi by his acts, that this is a guy who is overseeing the internment of people based on religion in concentration camps and murdering them in China in order to suppress opposition. This is a place that has a lot of problems internally. So are they a greater challenge potentially than the Soviets over the long haul? Yes, because of their wealth. Right. But they have a lot of problems that we don't have in this country. And we need to begin to work on being very tough and very direct on them to avoid the catastrophe that Henry Kissinger is, I think, rightfully giving us a preview of. But part of that is based upon an American theory that was well-intentioned but did not work, which is if we sell McDonald's and Nike to China, they will become freer. Worked They've in South Korea, worked in Taiwan, yeah. in Taiwan and didn't work in China, why? I think because of the intransigence of the communist government. Because they're communists. Right, in China. And, and, and they, but more than communists, Peter, they're authoritarians. And they like authoritarian government. Uh, and that's all they've been used to over their entire history. So I think that's even the bigger problem than communism is authoritarianism. You didn't have that in South Korea were Taiwan. So I, that's why I say the policy was well-intentioned. It was just misplaced in China. And we need to pull back from that and understand that we need to bring manufacturing back from China to the United States. We shouldn't be doing all that over there, not only as an economic proposition, but as a national security proposition. So can I just, this is, I don't know if this is the right, this is almost the kind of question I'd ask over a beer someplace. I've just spent 18 18 months, two years, and the job I have interviewing people, woe is us about China. They're using artificial intelligence. They'll be able to control their population. They're, get, they're rich. They're invested all over this country. They have hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals. We have them studying it. And it's worry and woe. And I'm looking at Chris Christie, and it looks to me as though Chris Christie sizes them up and says to himself, we can take them. Yeah. I do say that, and I say that, though, understanding that it will take the type of American resolve that defeating Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan took. It's serious. It's very serious, and I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of the challenge, but what I'm saying is I'm optimistic about our ability to be able to take it on because if President Xi had such stability and control of his people, why is he putting them in concentration camps and killing them? You wouldn't have to do that if you had control over your people. We don't do that in this country. We don't inter people based upon religion or political philosophy or any other basis in concentration camps in this country to separate them from the rest of the country, to stop them from influencing the country, and then to murder them to set an example. That's what's happening in China every day. Unacceptable. All right. The present. The present administration. covid and the mandates. In September, President Biden announces the nationwide vaccine mandate, mandates affecting 
all federal workers, in, uh, including those in uniform, all federal contractors, and it turns out there are a lot of companies you wouldn't automatically assume are federal contractors that are, including every airline, and every enterprise that employs more than 100 people. A couple of quotations here. President Biden addressing the unvaccinated. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. Your refusal has cost all of us. Close quote. Dr. Fauci, this is also in September, controlling COVID may require, quote, many, many more mandates. You'd like to have people do it totally on a voluntary basis, but if that doesn't work, you've got to go to the alternatives. Close quote. Governor, how would you handle COVID? Well, they failed. And as to the Trump administration um, near the end of their term in persuading people as to why being vaccinated was safe and smart. And I don't believe that mandates will bring our country together. I just believe it further divides us. Look, we've got 65 or so percent of the country right now fully vaccinated without mandates. It seems to me you're never going to get to 100 mm-hmm. percent. And that I was we were told all along that if we got to about 70 percent vaccination, that herd immunity would take care of the rest of it. Right. If that science is true, and we were told to follow the science, if that science is true, we've got 5% more of the American people to get vaccinated, and we haven't even begun vaccinating children yet for parents who are willing to have their children vaccinated. If you're talking about 5% of 330 million people, we're only talking about another 16 million people or so to be vaccinated to get to 70%. I don't believe we should do that at the end of the hammer of government. I believe that this, this, this administration should go on a broad, smart, extensive education program beyond anything we've seen so far to educate people. People want to be educated, not indoctrinated. And I think that we can persuade a sufficient number of the American people that the vaccine is the most broadly tested and researched vaccine that we've ever given to the American public, that we're in the midst now of the largest clinical trial in world history with billions of people getting this vaccine around the world, and we're not seeing any type of complications. If we start to talk to people about that, I think we'll be able to persuade them. But I think these mandates just further separate people and their government from each other. Broadly speaking, Americans don't like to be told what to do. You know, the... the, And that's admirable, usually, isn't it? Of course it is. And the fact is that, you know, my state slogan is liberty and prosperity. Um, Liberty being the first word. Right. And and that's what Americans have been taught over time. It's about freedom and liberty. Now, look, I think the smart thing to do here is to be vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Everyone in my family is. Um, and we've been able to stay. I had COVID. I don't think anybody should want to have this disease. It is random and it is lethal. And so you don't want to get it. You don't want to play around with it. Um, But I don't believe that we should have the government setting out these mandates. Do I think employers have the right to do it? I do. Employers, you know, set out the conditions of employment every day, um, and they have the right to do that. But government doing it to me is a much, much different thing and something that we all need to be concerned about. All right. Wokeness. Barry Weiss in Commentary Magazine. According to recent studies, 
This just blew me away. According to recent studies, 62% of Americans are afraid to voice their true views. I don't think you actually come in that 62%. I'm on the other side. 62% are afraid to voice their true views. Nearly a quarter of American academics endorse ousting colleagues for having wrong opinions. And nearly 70% of students favor reporting professors if the professor says something that students find offensive, close quote. The federal government, the mainstream media, all our universities, the big corporations are all rejecting freedom of speech in favor of a new political orthodoxy, wokeness. What, can, what are you going to do about that? Well, I think you just have to continue to be yourself and not give into it. Um, now, look, uh, society always changes. You mentioned earlier um, in leading into another topic that in 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report used the term Negro. Right. Something we would never use never today. never think of it today. Right? Because, you know, people who are African-American would be offended by that term and prefer another term. Those are things that we always evolve in in this country. My mother's people, her parents, who immigrated here from Sicily, were called WAPs and Guineas when they got here. Um, that's something that would never be acceptable today, nor should it be. But where I think we've gone way off course here is that the expression of opinions right. are now things that are subject to this snowflake culture where everybody is so delicate and so sensitive. And in fact, if you're not, you're somehow seen as a bigot. If you're not overly sensitive, uh, I think this stuff is garbage. And the fact is, this country has to be able to be a place where we can express ourselves. But I tell you, I believe the numbers. Yeah. You know, you go to, um, and COVID has, has, has delayed this impact, I think, a little bit. But when people start once again to be having dinner parties and cocktail parties where lots of people gather, the conversations are going to be totally different because people are concerned about whether saying something that they believe that is contrary to the conventional wisdom of the moment, now just doesn't get them not invited to the next party. It maybe costs them their job right. and their careers right. and their families. And that's something they're unwilling to risk. So I think that's a concern. And I think the only way to push back on it is to be yourself and say what you believe and be willing to stand up for whatever the criticism of that is gonna be afterwards. Politics, a couple of political questions here because it's irresistible. As recently as the 1980s, we're talking about 70s and 80s again, New York and California remained politically in play. Reagan carries all three, he carried New Jersey. Yep. Today, those states are out of, out of reach for a GOP candidate. Hispanics, Donald Trump did better than Mitt Romney or John McCain, but he still carried only 32%, under a third of Hispanics. African-Americans, Trump carried only 12%. Big cities, almost entirely Democratic. We're recording this in New York, where the Democratic registration is 7 to 1 over Republicans. Even in Texas, of the five biggest cities, one has a Republican mayor. Here's what may be the most telling figure. In the five of the last six elections, the Republican presidential candidate lost the popular vote. 
Well, you know, you grew up in New Jersey. You had your chance to become a Democrat. You're stuck now. Mm -hmm. What do you do with this party that can't appeal to urban populations, that's losing Hispanics by two to one, that's losing African-Americans by eight or nine to one? What do you do? I, first of all, I don't believe that those things are irreversible. Um, Ronald Reagan was not your prototypical person you would think would appeal broadly in the way he was characterized in the popular media, yet in his re-election, he won 49 states. George W. Bush won significant percentages of the Hispanic vote as uh, late as 2004. Right. Why? Why did George W. Bush do that, win uh, so many among the Hispanics? Because he campaigned to them. He spoke to them and to their values and their concerns. How did you win 51% in New Jersey? Same thing. I went to Hispanic communities all over my state. And many of those places had not seen a Republican for years. You showed up. Absolutely. Woody Allen is right on this one. You know, 90% of life is showing up. And you need to show up and you need to keep showing up. And we have to stop being an instant gratification political party. What I mean is, you know, you show up once or twice, you think, well, they didn't vote for me this time. I'm not going to come back. We have to keep going back. People need to know that we're reliable friends, reliable allies. And I don't think they feel that right now. It's particularly in the African-American community. And I don't think they feel it in the Hispanic community. But let me say this. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest issue that Republicans should be discussing that will bring us city voters, that will bring us ethnic and, and, and uh, uh, voters like Hispanics um, and African-Americans is education. The Democrats in all these cities have failed the African-American and Hispanic population in terms of public education. And we have generations now of children who don't read as well as they should, right. who can't do math as well as they should. And what have the Democrats done? They have sold their soul to the teachers' union. They have sold their soul to mediocrity. They have sold their soul to the people who protect bad teachers each and every day. Bill de Blasio did his best for almost eight years now to stamp down on the charter school movement in this city, which benefited overwhelmingly black and Hispanic kids. Have I got that right? Of course. Absolutely right. <clears throat> and the one encouraging thing about this mayor's race is that both candidates seem to be saying the opposite, that they want to encourage more charter schools um, in, in New York because they realize the educational system is a failure. Let me give you an example from New Jersey. Yeah. Camden, New Jersey, had the had five of the 10 worst schools in New Jersey. They were a complete disaster. We, the state, when I was governor, took over that school district. We established charter schools and renaissance schools in that school district. This year, this year, over 60% of the children in Camden read at or above grade level. When I made that move, that number was 12%. Don't tell me that minority children can't learn. Don't tell me that it's something about their upbringing that makes them not be able to succeed. We are failing in the schools. We are seeing this now in the Virginia governor's race with critical race theory 
and all the things that are trying to be shoved in by the teachers union and the teachers union member who sleeps in the White House every night, Jill Biden, who is making sure this happens by allowing and forcing her husband to do it. Um, the fact is, we better start talking about education as a party again, because that affects every family, white, black, Hispanic, straight, gay, doesn't matter what kind of family you are, you want your children to be educated. You and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo are co-chairing the National Republican Redistricting Trust. The aim, as I understand it, is to raise some money and put together legal talent to help Republicans in this, that, or the other state as legal challenges get mounted against Republican redistricting efforts. Have I got that correct? You do. All right. So let me ask you then, the Trump campaign, a year before Election Day, at least a year before Election Day, it was clear, it was clear that because of COVID, there may have to have been some changes in election laws in various states so that people could vote, people who were locked down. But it was also clear at the same time, again, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, that the Democrats were in various places attempting to change laws, not just to make it to make it easier to vote under extraordinary circumstances, but in ways that would clearly advantage the Democratic Party. And as best I can tell, instead of the Republican Party or the Trump administration putting together money and legal talent to challenge misjudged or obviously rawly political moves on the part of the Democratic Party, that were taking place long before election day itself, they did nothing. Have I got that right? You do, it's the biggest failure of the Trump campaign was that they raised over $1.2 billion and did not invest sufficiently in a legal infrastructure that could take on those changes before election day and then sought to complain about them after. Um, that's wrong on both ends. And it's a failure of the president it's a failure of his campaign. And now we see states like Georgia and Texas and others who are making changes to those laws. And you have Joe Biden out there lying and saying this is somehow Jim Crow 2.0. Right. When in a place like Georgia, for instance, they have double the number of early voting days that New Jersey has. And Stacey Abrams from Georgia came to New Jersey to praise our law even though we have half the number of voting days, early voting days, as Georgia. This is all about politics, Peter. And, and, and I will tell you, um, I think that what we need to do is to stand up to these changes in the laws and bring integrity back to our elections, bring rapid counting back to our elections. It should not take us a week to find out who the president of the United States is. And you want to make an investment in America's democracy? help all these states by the number of vote counting machines they need to be able to give us a result on election night in 2022 and in 2024, because this is merely a function of not being able to count quickly enough. Well, that is a machine-generated issue, more machines, a greater ability to count your votes, and that should be Can fun. I just, could, just this, this, is, this is just a dumb layman's question, but every single time I go to an ATM machine, it gives me the right amount of cash. And within 24 hours, it shows up in my online bank account. We have the technology to count votes and to count them 
accurate. Do we not? We do, and we have to invest in them. We have to invest more in it because if we're going to a society that's going to vote more by mail, right? And I think we are. You moving. do. I do think we're that's... moving in that direction. All right. I do. Um, I think people are addicted to convenience. And if they can sit in their kitchen and fill out their ballot and drop it in their mailbox and vote, um, they a lot of people are going to prefer that. I love, I was raised on going to the polling place, signing my name in the book, going into that booth, closing the curtain, and having that moment of democratic participation. Right. But I will tell you that my first vote ever was by absentee ballot because I turned 18 my freshman year in college, and I voted for Ronald Reagan for president in 1980 in my dorm room at the University of Delaware. I didn't feel like I was any less a participant on that moment. So what we're talking about, Peter, is think about my county quickly in, in New Jersey. Um, it's not a big vote-by-mail county. What county are you Morris County. Okay. And a suburban, mostly white, suburban-educated county. Uh, most people went on Election Day. This time, of course, they did not right. in 2020. Almost everyone voted by mail. Imagine going from about 12% of your total vote being by mail to 98% of your vote being by mail. And you still have the two same two counting machines to count the paper ballots that you always did. In Morris County, it took us two weeks, two weeks to have a final count of the presidential vote. I mean, that's just wrong. Crazy. And so what Mike Pompeo and I are trying to do finally is to also push back against Barack Obama and Eric Holder, who run the Democratic countergroup to us. And they say right in their charter that their job is to increase the number of Democratic districts. That's gerrymandering. What we say we want to do is have fair, compact, constitutional maps. And if we have those, we believe the Republican Party will control Can I, the House of Representatives. This is, another, this is another one of those. I'm tempted to, maybe I should ask it over a beer. Redistricting is politics at the grittiest, toughest, roughest level. You bet. And you love it. Yeah. Because that's what makes elections go, you know? I mean, and what you realize is that demographics play a huge part of elections when you run for office. You realize that. And so, to me, those are the fights worth having. And that's why I agreed with Mike Pompeo to do this nationally, because they need somebody from New Jersey um, to get in there and get our hands dirty to be able to fight Barack Obama and Eric Holder. Remember, one of my predecessors who just recently passed away, uh, Governor Brendan Byrne, a Democrat, he used to say in his speeches near the end of his life, because he died in his 90s, mm. um, he used to say near the end of his life, by the way, I've made my wife promise that when I die, she'll bury me in Hudson County, New Jersey, so that I can remain active in politics. <laughs> um, so we know a little bit about cheating in elections in New Jersey, and that's why I think they need somebody like that in there to be watching over what happens on redistricting. Okay, last, last political question. It's a big one. And it's Donald Trump. On the one hand, President Trump stood up to wokeness. He stood up to China. You say he tossed too many bouquets, but he also imposed trade sanctions. He enacted an economic program that until COVID struck, produced the first real increase in wages for ordinary Americans in decades. And then last year, he wins more than 74 million votes. Now that's fewer votes than Joe Biden, but it is still more votes than any Republican presidential candidate ever received. 
That's on one hand. Here's the other hand. This is Jerry Baker in the Wall Street Journal earlier this very week. Jerry notes that current polls suggest the GOP could retake the House next year. You say you think you agree with that. Jerry says maybe even the Senate as well. Quote, out of the current turmoil, Republicans may have an opportunity to begin building a governing coalition the country hasn't seen in a generation. But Donald Trump remains a threat to the republic. It takes an act of willful blindness to deny that his continuing rejection of the 2020 election is a unique challenge to orderly constitutional government." Close quote. There are two questions there. One is, do you feel it? Do you feel that there may be a big opportunity emerging? And then second, of course, is the Trump question. Well, there is a big opportunity emerging. And the same way it emerged in 1994, the same way that it emerged in 2010. Because when both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama got elected with Democratic majorities, they overreached and went beyond what the American people wanted. In 1994, Republicans recapture the House for the first time in four decades. 2010, with the Tea Party at its back, the Republicans sweep to a large large majority in the House again. Absolutely. Right. And I think that's what we're, we're, we're heading towards in 2022, more because of Democratic overreach than because of Republican articulation of principles in a persuasive way. If we add to it an articulation of principles in a persuasive way, then we're going to add to those majorities even more. Second, on, on President Trump, look, I've been very clear on this. There is no evidence that the 2020 election was stolen. Were there irregularities? In I some want to repeat that you started. At, you start political life as a U.S. attorney. You know the law. You know when there's a skunk, you don't smell one. No. And by the way, it's not even about smelling anymore. You can't see it. You know, you got to see it. You got to be able to present it to people. If you're going to say that our democracy was hijacked, which is what he said, you better have evidence. And over 60 court cases now and no evidence has been brought forward to persuade anybody in any individual state. We had a recount in Arizona that showed in Maricopa County, the biggest county, that Donald Trump actually got fewer votes than what was reported on Election Day. We had two recounts in Georgia, which verified the results in Georgia. Uh, the fact is that the election was not stolen, and it's demonstrable. On the other hand, we understand that if he had done his job the way he should have, that we could have challenged a lot of those laws, as we talked about before, and should have, and could have stopped some of these changes that were meant not for reaction to the pandemic, but were meant to try to garner long-term political advantage for the Democrats. And here's what I think overall for our party. Any party that spends its time looking backwards is a losing party. You have to look forward and you have to speak to people's dreams and hopes and aspirations and how you can help them reach that. And if we are a backward-looking party, looking back to 2020, we will not win in 2022 and we will not win in 2024. Last question. <clears throat> Governor, I have a tale of two Chris Christie's for you here. Here's the first one. Chris Christie decides he's had enough of public life. He's in good health. He's not yet 60. And he decides to join some corporate boards. He becomes of counsel to some fancy law firm here in Manhattan. And he's got a spread out in Morristown. He can get an apartment in Manhattan and a nice place in West Palm. And life is really, really comfortable. And here's the second Chris Christie. 
Chris Christie knows something about history, and he recognizes that from Pericles on, all kinds of things have changed. But the essential of democratic leadership is still for one citizen to present himself to his fellow citizens, to speak his mind, and persuade them to follow him. And Chris Christie recognizes that he is just unusually gifted at that particular set of skills. Tom Kane again, he's the most able politician I know, close quote. So between these two Chris Christies, Chris Christie decides to embrace what? I've always embraced the latter. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'll run for office again. It does not. No. But I'm not going to disappear from public life um, and trying to contribute to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but running for office is a particular, particular challenge and one that I have no interest in doing for just the experience. I've had the experience of running for president. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a great, great experience. But if I were to run again, it would be because I saw a pathway to winning. Because in the end, what I enjoy even more in politics is the politics of governing and trying to make a difference in our country um, that would be laudable and sustainable. Uh, so I can't imagine myself doing the former, um, at least not willingly. You know, going off and and uh, you know just making money and and uh, and having what you characterize as a very comfortable life. There's nothing wrong with that for most people, but it's not the way I was raised, and it's not my DNA. Um, you know, my mother always used to say to me um, that if you're not willing to try to fix a problem, you have no right to complain about it. And that's been a principle that I've tried to live by for my entire life, and tried to pass on to our children. And the way you pass on those things to your children is not talking about it, it's doing it and letting them see it uh, and see the impact you can have. So I, I suspect I'll still be in public life for some period of time to come. Father time is, is defeats everyone ultimately, um, but uh, I feel good, um, I'm happy, and I feel like I still have a lot to say. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, thank you. Thank you, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.